0: Well, as we begin, I, I want to also <clears throat> just offer a word of, of gratitude and thanks to Warren Etheridge and Jason Simon for filling in in my absence over the last several weeks. It, it gives me great comfort to know we've got such great teachers uh, in our congregation that can faithfully come and, and encourage you in the Word of, of God, and, and I think both those men did such a phenomenal job. And, and last week, uh, Jason had the opportunity to actually introduce a whole new series, and and I wanted to take some time to kind of reiterate some of those things that he mentioned and give you more insight to what's kind of driving my thinking as we head into 2021. I'm going to tell you everything that Jason meant to say. Uh, I'm kidding. He did a great job. But I I want to just kind of give you an insight into what has allowed us or or led us to what we're going to be studying this series as well as kind of the rest of the year. And uh, a lot of things go into my decision-making process when I think through some of these details. I, I try to in the fall or in the summer, plan a whole year in advance. And, and I will tell you, it's always written in pencil because things can change, and this series is a great example of it. But I like to try to sense, where is God leading us? And several of the things that I factor into that consideration is, number one, just obviously the Spirit's leading. Right? What is God laying on my heart? What am I seeing in our, in our folks, in the congregation? What is God leading us to consider? So that's obviously the most important piece. Um, I also give consideration to what have we been talking about? Uh, you know, were we in the Old Testament? Were we in the New Testament? Was it an epistle? Was it a gospel? I I want us to make sure that we have a holistic and comprehensive uh, diet of Scripture, right? That we're getting all of it. So I try to factor that into the equation. And then obviously, I think about our context, Uh, things that we might be facing as a congregation or as a society, as a culture. You know, are we celebrating a 90th anniversary? Do we have a particular project that we're focused on? All these different things go into the thinking and in the preparation and the plans. And so Uh, as I was reflecting on this in the fall and I was thinking about 2020 and and just the onslaught of a year that it has been and all the things that we have weathered as as a people I I just kind of kept coming back to this one particular phrase it was like there was this this kind of image in my mind this mental picture um, because 2020 has been so disruptive and it's it's created so many concerns on different levels I, I had this image in my mind that I'm pretty sure is in a movie somewhere, but I don't have enough clarity of this image to know what movie or any of the specifics, but it's like I, I picture a, a young child um, caught up in a very chaotic scene or setting, right? It could be like the outscor- outskirts of like a war-torn environment or maybe like a natural disaster tornado tornadoes coming through or something, but it's, it's chaos around this child and panic and fear is beginning to set in. And so the parent, the mother, the father, whoever it is, comes in and, and holds the child by the face and says, look at me right just just look at me and it's almost like a parental instinct of protection for the child right that don't don't look at all this stuff around you just look at me and I'm going to get you through this and and that's kind of what I I feel like God is saying to us right that all the different things that can create concerns right now as we look around our world and the things that we're experiencing it's almost as if God is is bringing us in close and holding us by the head and saying just look at me I'm going to get you through and so the phrase that I kept coming back to is fix your eyes on Jesus right from Hebrews 12 and I was like that that's what what we're going to do and so the the whole year was kind of shaped by that phrase and that idea all the different ways that we can look Jesus. We were going to start with, with a Psalm 22, kind of this prophetic, messianic Psalm to see God's power revealed and him, bringing to fruition the things he promised of old. And then we're going to take some time to look at the names of Jesus. We have some plans to look at the words of Jesus as they're found in the book of Revelation that I'm really excited about. We're hoping to look at parables of Jesus, just all these things that keep us focused on Jesus. And ironically, I had no intent to actually look at Hebrews 12. I was just going to reference it and not study it. And then And a week and a half ago i'm sitting at home and and i'm i'm dealing with all the emotions of things going on with my family and my father and i'm trying to study psalm 22 because i think that's where we're going to start with this series and i turn on the tv and i watch the events of january 6th unfold and i see what takes place in our nation's capital and nothing felt right like nothing that i was reading felt like it fit and and i thought this is we this isn't it and, and so I went back and read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and it just landed. And I thought, man, we need, we need to do more than just reference this phrase of fixing your eyes on Jesus. We need to study it and all the implications and, and what that looks like and how we pursue it. And from that moment on, I said, okay, we're, we're pivoting, we're going Hebrews 12. And that's who we're going to be for the next several weeks. And, and Jason did a great job kicking us off in that regard. And, and part of the reason I think this these first three verses are so indicative is because I think part of what's what's taking place in our world are these fears, right? could be economic fears, fears related to health, fears related to to our, our country, our culture, right? All these different things. And so we're grasping, we're grasping for anything that can alleviate that fear, give us some sense of peace and stability. And what we really need to do is to refocus on Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ, because when we fix our eyes on him, then, then all those fears are gone. It's when we fix our eyes on him that our, that our hope is truly sure, because we see he is enough, he's ours, and that's all that we need, right? And, and I think Hebrews 12 really helps draw that into focus. And so grab your Bibles, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 12, uh, and, and we're gonna just work through this a phrase at a time, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, we're probably going long today, all right? I've been gone for three weeks, so I'm doing three sermons, and one, all right? I'm not really, but it, it probably will go long. But anyway, I, it, I think it's a very important discussion today. And the approach here is to take this phrase by phrase. Jason did a great job introducing certain elements of the book of Hebrews, talking about the authorship, the audience. One of the things I wanna reiterate this morning is the occasion for this letter, why it was written to begin with. And the reason we can infer for the writing of this letter just by reading through it is that this community, this church of Hebrew believers was wavering in their faith, Right? It was a crisis of faith. There was, there was this failure of nerve. They were growing weary in their commitment to the gospel. They were beginning to, to loosen their grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ, and, and, and move in a different direction, likely because of persecution and, and fear and all these different things. And so I think it really relates to us. Right? I think it relates to our climate and our context because we, too, are struggling with what I see and sense, and, and a lot of us, is a misguided faith predicated upon fear and so the author is writing this letter to say listen hold tight right let me encourage you to, to stay strong in your faith in the structure that the author uses to communicate this i, I love the structure the, the rhythm of hebrews is this alternating field between exposition and exhortation right so exposition is thematic development let me introduce to you a theme and explain it to you Jesus is a great high priest. Here's why. Right? And then then the author will go through all these different details of the Old Testament, New Testament, how Jesus is a great high priest. But the author is doing all that for a reason of exhortation, of encouragement. Therefore, since he is a great high priest, let's not throw away our confidence, but approach the throne of grace boldly. Let us continue meeting with one another, encouraging one another towards love and good deeds, holding unswervingly to the faith that we profess. Right? That's the rhythm right? Theme, exposition, then exhortation. And that's what Hebrews 12 is following as well. What happens in Hebrews 11? What theme is introduced? Faith. Faith is being sure of what is hoped for and certain of what cannot be seen. Let me give you all these examples of faith, the author writes. Let me remind you of Abraham and Moses and Noah and all these others that I don't even have time to tell you about and all these others that suffered all these things and the world was still not worthy of them. Right, and he, he gives this exposition, this theme of faith, and then chapter 12 comes along in its exhortation. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's do this. And that theme shifts to command, to imperative, to encouragement. And so we're going to read these first three verses each week so that they become embedded in our memories, but then we're just going to break them down one phrase at a time. So follow along with me in chapter 12, starting in verse one. So jason kind of referenced that opening line we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that speaks to this this hall of fame of faith that is listed out in chapter 11 we can we can build upon it in our own experiences and think of people in our own lives that have demonstrated that same faith and be encouraged right that there are numerous people that have gone before us right that the the fact that we find ourselves in trying times and difficult times is nothing new It has been a part of the story of God's people from the very beginning, and we have all these examples and these witnesses that demonstrate what it means to hold unswervingly to the faith that we profess, right? And since we have that affirmation and that encouragement, now the author turns to the commands, right? Here's then what I'm gonna ask you to do. And the first thing that he says, and what we're gonna talk about today, is throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles. right, so let's break that down. It's, It's very intuitive, very simple, The idea of hindrance is anything that impedes, anything that obstructs, right? We had a great example of it with our children's message today. And it it is drawing upon this this kind of imagery that the author is introducing of an athlete running a race, right? That it was very common for athletes at that point to, to shed themselves of anything that would impede their ability to run. It right? could be excess clothing. could be the training that they would go through in advance to shed excess body weight, whatever. They, they removed everything that could hinder them from running. Right? And, and that's what that word means, throw off. It means to set aside, like be, be done with, <clears throat> completely remove it. And, and so one of the things I would point out, though, about this first part of this phrase is that it doesn't mean it has to be sinful. Like, that's coming next. But the common is everything that hinders. And part of what I want us to acknowledge by reading this verse is that there's a lot of things in life that can hinder our faith and obstruct and impede our faith that is not inherently sinful, right? Like like good things that can still get in the way, like, like our jobs. When our jobs become ultimate or distracting or lead us in a way that is counter to what God is calling us to do, that's a hindrance. Family. When our love for family, children, siblings, parents, whatever, becomes ultimate and and consuming and becomes, again, distracting and leads us away, that's a hindrance. Man, just being tired, right? Like waking up deplenished, depleted, right? With the inability to approach each day with vigor and and passion and, and tenacity and commitment, right? That's a hindrance. So anything in your life that is hindering your faith, set it aside. That's what the author is imploring of this, this audience and this congregation. Now he complements it with this other uh, more intentional description of also the sin that so easily entangles, right? And the word entangles means to constrict, right? It, it's, it's this idea of being surrounded almost and, and immobile. And, and that's exactly what sin does, does it? Now, now we can venture into those things that we do know are destructive and, and do often put us in bondage. Like Greed, or lust, or anger, or gossip, envy, malice, slander, right? The list goes on and on and on. And it puts us in bondage and it entangles us. So again, the author's like, rid yourself of all of it. And so when you read a verse like that, it's very simple, it's very straightforward. And, and so the primary question is, that that I would say is the thrust of today's message is, what is it for you? What several things would it be for you? Have you taken time recently to have the self-introspection and evaluation to say, these are things in my life that are hindering my faith, and I need to set them aside? Maybe what, what you need to do is not just reflect on that here in this moment, but commit a couple of days, maybe a week to that and really identify those things, and begin to confess those things, and, and, and begin to put together that plan to set those things aside. Ask people that know you, right? Ask your D group, hey, what do you see hindering me that I don't see, what's my blind spot? Ask a loved one, ask a family member, right? If we don't ask those hard questions and approach this sort of, this verse with that sort of humility, then we, we've missed our opportunity to actually fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? We, we move into this race hindered and impeded, not running the way that God wants us to run. So we have to do that work. That, that is the simple message today. Make sure that you take the time to evaluate those things and identify those things in your life. I, I thought about taking the opportunity this morning and, and kind of going through all the different things that are kind of common. Because I, I would imagine that while we would all have probably different answers for what our hindrances are in our faith, we'd probably find some common threads commonalities but it's a long list and in the reality is, is that the, the more i thought about it there was really just one thing that i felt like we really needed to discuss this morning as it pertains to this verse something that i really do feel has become a tremendous hindrance and something that is so easily entangling and and, and that's really where i want to focus the rest of the message and and I'll, I'll say this before we get into this that um i'm about to break a cardinal rule of preaching and pastoring <laughs> um and I know that, and, and, and I'm, I'm well aware of the risks, and that probably for many of you, or some of you, or a few of you, um, you may not like what I have to say for the rest of this time. And it potentially could offend. I'm, I'm fully aware of the risk, but I feel like we have to talk about it. And it's a subject that I've talked about before. I, I've talked about it. I've referenced it. I have gone about it in certain detail at certain times, but not with the same sort of focus and intentionality that I intend for us to talk about this morning. Uh, I want to talk to us about politics, right, which is something you're not usually supposed to do from the pulpit, but we're going to, because I see it as a definitive hindrance and something that is easily entangling the church. And so as we get into this conversation this morning, let me try to establish some groundwork so that I, I hope it will be received well. And, and let's kind of come to an agreement together. The first is this. I'm, I'm gonna ask that whatever narrative you subscribe to when it comes to politics, set it aside, right? Like I, you're like me and we all have a narrative and especially with all that has been discussed in the last several weeks and months and even longer, you already have that narrative that probably came up into your head anticipating what may or may not be said, all right? It could be an impulse to say, I told you so, an impulse to, to defend and rationalize, whatever it is, right? And if you feel the unease and you feel the, the readiness to try to set it aside, set those narratives aside. We need to all come to this conversation with humility and a readiness to listen to the Spirit. And the other thing that I want you to know before we get into this is that this is not me trying to come and point fingers while we will offer critique today um, this isn't about other people this is about us right this is not what other folks need to work on this is us this is a conversation about introspection and how all of us have played a part and how all of us need to play a part towards a solution right and and then the last thing that i would say just before we get into this is i want you to know i love this country Um, My grandfather fought in World War II. I am deeply appreciative of the sacrifice that he and so many others have made to secure for each and every one of us the freedoms, the rights, the opportunities, the privileges that are afforded to us in this country. It is not lost on me how fortunate we are, and I am beyond grateful, and I love this country. I do not worship it. It is not above critique. And so don't mistake any critique that we offer today, not really of of the country, but of the church, to be misconstrued from my love and my appreciation for the country within which we live. But we do need to talk about it. Okay, because really what we need to talk about is syncretism, right? Are you familiar with the word syncretism? Syncretism is, is the fusion or the fusing of two ideas into something new. And this has been something that has plagued the church from the very beginning. Because what will happen is you have this philosophy over here and this philosophy over here, they meet each other, they fall in love, and they have a baby, and they create something altogether different. And, and Christianity has faced that from the very beginning, right? Christian ideas and principles meet this culture, this construct, this worldview, they fall in love, and they create something different that is not Christianity and is not the original worldview. And that's what we're dealing with, right? The, what, what we have in, in our midst is we have. These Christian principles and ideas and values and convictions, and then our American identity, right? And all these thoughts and these feelings about our rights and our freedoms and manifest destiny and our history and our heritage, and they're fusing together and creating something that is not Christian and is not American. And it is leading people astray in mass, right? And so, so let me try to define it for you. There's an article in Christianity Today that was sent to me by one of our church members, and it was an interview uh, with Paul D. Miller, who's a professor at Georgetown University, and he's a consultant for the Ethics, Religious, and Life Commission, which is a policy-making branch of the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and really, really smart guy. And, and he was trying to define these dynamics, and, and he refers to the syncretistic belief system that exists right now as Christian nationalism. Right, so here's how he would define a difference. He says, Christianity, this is me paraphrasing, Christianity is a belief, it's a religion, about ultimate things like life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's Christianity. Christian nationalism is a worldview of American identity that is really a prescription of policies that people believe the government should and should not follow based upon this idea that Christianity needs to be sustained and maintained within this country. Right? And, and a majority of evangelicals, which I would side note say is a political term now more than it is a religious one, believe in, like 78% believe in this kind of strain of Christian nationalism by, by some research and polls. Right, and so, so how does this happen? It, it's, it's destructive, it's, it's, it's a hindrance, because it's creating something that is not Christian, and I would argue is also not American. And so the, the thing that I want us to wrestle with this morning is, well, how does it happen? Like, how do we get there? How do we fall victim to it? And then what do we need to do about it? Right, that, that's kind of the, the conversation I wanna have. Here's, this, this is my opinion, this is my observation of it. Here's how I think it happens. It starts very subtly at a very early age. Right, that, that we kind of get this idea planted in our heads. Right, we, we, we say a pledge of allegiance that says we're one nation under God, and we learn about our founding documents that talk about that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator to inalienable rights. And we look at our currency and our money, and it says, In God, we trust. And and all of a sudden, from the very beginning, we have all this religious terminology infused with our country. And it almost feels like our country is religious, right? And then we learn about our history, and we understand that so many of the people that came over to the new world were fleeing religious persecution, and were Christians. And so some of the oldest buildings constructed in our country are churches. And before long, whether it's explicit or subtle in our mind, we kind of have in the back of our head that this is a Christian nation. And it's not, right? Because God and Creator are not distinctly Christian terms. And there's nothing in our founding documents, nothing that suggests or indicates we are to be a Christian nation. The only mention, there's no easy way to cough in this microphone. I'm sorry. The only mention of religion in our founding documents is in the First Amendment, which is that there should be freedom of it. Right? The people that, that wrote the founding documents were not Christian. We're not a Christian nation. Do we have Christian influences? Absolutely. But this is not a government that was set and established to pursue Christian ideals. Let me take it further, even if it was, even if, if Christianity was splattered all over the Constitution. As believers, I would still be standing here saying, be weary of that. Be careful of that. Because there is nothing in the Bible that commands believers to go and create some form of Christian governing institution outside of the church. And the church is not to be confined by geographical, national interest. It transcends race. It transcends language. It transcends age. It transcends geography. The kingdom that we wait for is the kingdom that comes with Christ's return. And the only glimpse of that kingdom now in this life is the church. Nothing commands us to aspire to that. a reason submit to your authorities acknowledge your authorities nothing that commands us to create so so even already at the idea that it's a christian nation it's it's problematic so so that's where the seed gets planted though and so then democracy unfolds in our country and and now there's this other element that, that is very unique to not unique but distinct about how we practice democracy we develop two parties Two political parties. Despite the the warnings from the first president that said that's not a good idea, and that will lead you into strife, and division, and conflict, is how we've governed. Have there been other parties that emerged for a moment here and there? Have they changed identities? Absolutely, but by and large, we've operated with two parties. Here's why that's problematic. Because human history has shown us, regardless of the form of government that gets established, could be a dictatorship, could be a monarchy, be a democracy a republic it's a pursuit of power it's always a pursuit of power and who gets to have such power right and so in our situation because of two parties it creates a power struggle and that power struggle has led this nation beyond just debates over policy and documents but into civil war and assassinations and the unrest that we see all around us today but we stick to it all right and so here's what happens Christians then find themselves in this situation with two parties and kind of this this inkling and this idea of pursuing and advocating for Christian convictions and ideals in our country and, and what do we do we're like well, I, I got to pick a side right like, which, which one best aligns with what I believe is what Scripture teaches and what's in the Bible? Like, what do I do? And so, so we feel like we got to make a choice. And so if you look at the recent history, the way that this kind of began to really shape the political climate was in 1979, the moral majority is formed, right, by Jerry Falwell. So according to Britannica.com, this was a, a religious response engaging in the political arena as a response to what was developing in the 60s and the 70s, a response to all the, the immorality that was emerging, when, when the concerns about the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, sexual promiscuity, abortion, all these things were developing. And so the moral majority forms to engage politically. And what's the mantra? Pro-family, pro-America. And, and, and it starts to become a political force. That's often credited as being the reason that ronald reagan was elected and all of a sudden church and religious people they're fighting for the morality of america get a taste of power they like it as well so now all of a sudden we pick a side that that best suits our power Desires and we engage in this power struggle, but that becomes problematic. Why does that become problematic? Because what do we know about power? What does it do? It corrupts, right? Almost without fail, it corrupts. And so we engage in this, desiring it, but as as it progresses, we have to constantly combat and acknowledge corruption. But what we do is we try to excuse it. Right? We try to rationalize it. In our fight for morality, we have to keep justifying other immoralities as a result of the corruption that is inevitable and having to choose between two sides. And so you know what ends up happening? We end up hearing Christians say, well, I'm not really voting for a person. I'm voting for a party or a platform. Right? I, I, I'm voting because we really need Supreme Court justices. And we find this one issue or issues that matter to us and we rationalize everything else right? And and it's misguided faith. And I want to try to break that down for you and explain to you why I see it that way and give you an example. We've already jumped in the pool, so let me just swim to the deep end, okay? And and before I say this, um, I could talk about this and make this point with any issue, but I'm going to choose abortion because it's the one that's so consistently referred to, okay? And I want to have this conversation incredibly delicately, I know people who've had abortions i believe god loves them and can restore them and walk them through that i know how how controversial this is and how defensive people get i so i want to say this as sensitively as possible i also want to be very clear Okay, i'm not for abortion not at all and my fundamental belief in that is because i believe god can redeem and restore anything I do. And I understand that there are exceptions, right? Moments where you have to choose to save the mother's life, situations that could be brought upon by, by assault and violence. Like I get it, and for me, those need to be handled case by case, very delicately and sensitively. But by and large, I'm not, I'm not for it. Right? And so what happens is issues like abortion come up, and we we assume Right, that there's an answer for this that we need to pursue as Christians. right? Because we believe that the Bible would not want us to advocate for that, like to protect the unborn, whatever phrase you want to put to it. But what becomes misguided is that then our hope for that issue gets placed in the government. And in a Supreme Court nomination. In the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the legislation about when and when it can't take place. And those ideas end up stirring most of our emotions, most of our conversations, and most of our actions on this issue. And what I try to humbly submit to you today is that my reading of the scripture would be that if Roe versus Wade was overturned tomorrow, it would still be an issue. And what the church is called to do is to go find the young women, young men, young couples, and walk alongside them that are faced with those situations, and love them, and cry with them, and pray with them, and show them that God can redeem anything. Our hope for abortion is the church, not the government. But our faith and our energy and our rhetoric suggest otherwise. I'm telling you all, we could, we could go through a similar discussion related to immigration, to civil rights, to fam- pick, I just picked that one. right? And so then we get all into it based on these issues and this power struggle. And because we, we dive into it, it adds to the division. Because here's what... Here's what happens with this power struggle. Here's where it really gets dangerous. It starts by arguing over policy. Right? That's where it begins. Right? What, what we should or shouldn't do. But as it festers and grows, it becomes about right and wrong. My side is right. Your side is wrong. And if we sit in that long enough, which we have, you know where it graduates next? Good and evil. My side is good. Your view is evil. And that's incredibly dangerous. You know why? Because when you begin to view other things as evil, you can justify just about anything. Right, so, so there's a trust issue in our country, and it's not new. Right, like we didn't get here overnight. If you go back and look at some of the statistics, only 18% of Democrats believe that George Bush's election was legitimate, 18%. 2016, 66% of Democrats believed that the election of Donald Trump was illegitimate, believed Russia played a part in it, and now here we are in 67% of Republicans believe Joe Biden's election is illegitimate. Trust is gone. We don't trust each other, because I don't trust evil, is essentially what's happened, right? If the other side's evil, then why in the world would I trust it? And so if I don't trust the other side because I see it as evil, then I don't need to hear any explanation. And when when I have that erosion of trust, I am open to any deception, right? And when I can turn on the news and pick my side, CNN or Fox, or go down a rabbit hole on social media, and feed anything that just further justifies the idea that the other side is evil, Men, I will buy in and I'll get deceived quick. And Christians by the millions are being deceived. And make no mistake, it's intentional. Russell Moore is another great author on this. He had a great quote this week in a response to what we're seeing. Here's what he said. The truth is that many of the people making these claims know they're false and thought that some outcome, raising money, establishing their political futures, assuaging their egos would make those lies all right, but God forbid, right? And and we're falling into the lies that others are feeding on both sides, right? Because we're easily deceived, because trust is gone. And for many of us, this is now about good and evil. And when trust is gone, when you have a truth problem, you have a trust problem. You have a trust problem, you have an anger problem. And when that anger spills over, we see what unfolded a week and a half ago. We see people storming our nation's capital in a violent display that took people's lives. With Jesus saves banners in the thick of it. all to blame it's a hindrance and it is easily entangling the church and us as individuals so what do we do you know like what what do you do with it i have several suggestions to try to wrap this up here's the first one we have to repent every single one of us we need to repent Let me give you a good practical way to start. If you identify as Republican or Democrat or any political party, stop. Like, I'm saying more than just, well, I'm not going to tell people how I feel, right, because it's too controversial. Like, literally, if you see that as part of your identity, I'm a Democrat of Democrats, Raising a Democratic family. I'm a good, staunch American conservative, good old Republican. Stop. Set that identity aside. I, I implore you, from my view, it is a hindrance. It is easily entangling. It's not worth it. Quit seeing yourself that way. It's just perpetuating the problem. There are other things I think we can repent of, I made a list today that, that I know I think could apply, well, I don't think, I know applies to me. I'll just read through some of the things that I think could be a focus of prayer for all of us as we try to navigate this. I think we need to repent of loving our country more than we love our king. We need to repent of blind loyalty to a political party or idea. Repent of words of contempt, disdain, or hostility that we've offered towards others who don't share our view. Repent of slander and hatred that is often directed towards governing authorities and leaders. Repent of our desire for power and control because we're afraid. Repent of believing lies and conspiracies and failing to know the truth, of promoting and advocating those lies and conspiracies. Repent of listening to liberal and or conservative media more than the scripture. Repent of not knowing God's word, hoping for legislation more than gospel transformation. Repent of failing to pray for our nation's leaders, failing to pray for those who think differently than we do, failing to listen and to understand. We need to repent of misrepresenting Jesus for the sake of political gain. And perhaps above all, we need to repent of failing to trust in the sufficiency of Christ. Another thing I would ask us to do is engage. I don't want you to misunderstand today's message as a retreat from the political arena, right, to just no longer do anything about it and just avoid it. In fact, I'd say the opposite. I'd, I'd actually encourage you to engage, maybe more so on the local level than the federal. Right, so, for example, do you know when the next election is for our city? It's in May. We'll be electing a new mayor and city council. As Christians, I would encourage each and every one of us to know the name of every single person on that ballot and begin praying for them. Call them, write them, ask them their stories, what they see as the needs of this community. How can the church help? Maybe some of us need to consider running for office to withstand some of the corruption and the power, temptations that's so readily available to others who fall victim to it, but engage. The third thing I would say, believe in the church. (laughs) Perhaps one of the most frustrating things is to watch this lie get traction within the community of faith because we think our government can do more than the church. Believe in the church, believe in the community of faith, believe in what can be accomplished for poverty, for families, for those hurting, for the oppressed, and what God can do within the body of Christ, believe in the church and then the last thing i would say is to do exactly what we're going to try to accomplish this whole year fix your eyes on jesus focus on him because here's the truth y'all it could all change tomorrow right you, you could wake up tomorrow and civil war could break out Your freedom of religion could be gone. People could be pulling you away. And this whole democracy and things that we love and cherish could come crumbling down on its face, and Jesus would still be king. And he would still be enough. And nothing will stop his church. I want you to think about the people in Hebrews. And I want you to think about those people and champions of faith Who chose disgrace with God's people rather than the treasures of Egypt. Right? Those who who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword because of their faith, those that endured torture and stoning and persecution, who were destitute and threatened, and the world was not worthy of them. Think about the Hebrews themselves, that according to chapter 10, they too were persecuted and stood alongside those in prison, even joyfully accepted the confiscation of their own property because they knew that they had something better. Let us be his church that knows that God will fulfill his promises, that he who is coming will come and will not delay, and that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who believe and are saved. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. As when we do, we'll see that all the fears of life are gone and with him all of our hope is sure because no matter what befalls us, he is ours forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we submit to you a spirit of repentance that acknowledges our own part in playing into this philosophy that can so easily distract us from the hope of the gospel. Now, Father, we know that the sin that can so easily entangle and the things that can so frequently hinder us go far beyond just the political arena. And that many of us sit here today with additional concerns and challenges in our lives. And so for all of us, Father, we come before you confessing our need to cast aside these hindrances, these things that entangle us, Father, because all we desire is to run this race that you've marked out for us and to do so with joy and compassion and kindness. So Father, hold our face and our eyes towards yours. Let us not be distracted by the fears that surround us. And let us see the sufficiency of our King who is with us always let us walk by his side hold his hand and pursue his kingdom above all else we love you father in jesus name we pray amen and amen